Yesterday's newspaper makes for depressing reading. Conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq, an attempted coup by the police in Ecuador, peace talks between Israel and Palestine in danger of breaking down before they've really begun, a nuclear threat from Iran and North Korea, the terrorist threat from Al-Qaeda. The United States apologising for experimenting on Guatemalans having deliberately infected people with gonorrhea and syphilis. A spate of suicides following broken business dreams or internet suicide pacts. Parents allowing their adopted children to be abused by paedophiles. The economic squeeze and the threat of cuts hanging over the public sector. Reading the newspaper, it looks as if our world is out of control. And so often it looks to me as if evil gets the upper hand. Feeling the, the pain of this sorry world, the actress Lauren Bacall said, I don't see how anyone can be happy today except a newborn baby. Once you start reading the paper, she says, you realise what a nightmare it all is. Oh, whether it's the state of the world or, or personal tragedy, from time to time we're, we're forced to ask the big questions of life. Normally life goes on, we're busy, we just kind of get on with life and then something happens to ask us Uh, make us ask those big questions. What is life all about? What happens when I die? Is there a God? As uh, Sheila eventually asked that question. Is there a God? And if there is, what is he really like? Now the first readers of this book, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the first readers of this book may well have been tempted to ask similar questions. Some of them face the prospect of being murdered by evil regimes just because they followed Jesus Christ. They could be forgiven for questioning if God really cared for them. Or if he did care, to question whether he was powerful enough to change anything anyway. In chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, we are helped to begin to answer some of those big fundamental questions. This part of the Bible gives us, you see, a a little glimpse into heaven. Uh, We, uh, Caroline, uh, my wife and I, which incidentally is two people, not three, Caroline, my wife and I, um, uh, we used to to live about 30 miles from Stansted Airport. And one day in our back garden, on a glorious day, when the skies were clear, I looked up and saw above me a number of aeroplanes circling around, not just one or two, but five or six aeroplanes. I'd never seen that before. We were on a flight path, a flight path way up. I didn't really hear them often. And normally one, one would go over at a time, but now they were all five or six of them circling above. From where I was standing, I could make head nor tail of it. But if I'd been in the control centre at Stansted Airport, I'd have seen clearly what was happening. Indeed, I guess everything was under control because there was no report the next day of a near miss. As we look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're taken into the cosmic control centre of the universe where we get a different perspective on life and on the world. John, one of Jesus' followers, writes this, you'll see chapter 4 verse 1 After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this I was struck as uh, Sheila was speaking that she said you know if there is a God he'd have to show us the way we'd not be able to work it out for ourselves this is what this part of the Bible is about it is God showing us something that we can't work out for ourselves. 
John was shown a door and uh, as we follow John through that door in this chapter, we see that God is in complete control of the universe. There is one thing that, John's, that dominates John's vision and that is a throne, a throne with God sitting on it. It's so central John can barely write a verse without mentioning it. See verse 1, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. You'll see the same twice in verse 6, you'll see it in verse 9, in verse 10. Uh, Central in heaven then is a throne with God sitting on it. And the point is this, it's very straightforward, God is king. Uh, You get that big central thing shown to you when you look at what they are singing in heaven, what the creatures in heaven are singing. Do you see it there down in verse 8? That holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There are three simple things that are declared in heaven. Firstly, God is the Almighty King. Now, all the details of this vision tell us the same. He is King and He won't be dethroned. Which takes us on to the second point. He is permanent, who was and is and is to come. You see, world leaders come and go, not so the Lord God Almighty. There'll never be a successful coup in heaven. John's readers lived under the uh, powerful Roman Empire. At the time, the Romans seemed to have the world sewn up. But where are they now, consigned to the history books and the museums? The same will happen to the dictators and superpowers that rule our day, our world today. They'll come and go, but God will not be dethroned. He's almighty, he's permanent. And thirdly, he is holy. See it there, verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's holy, which for us, when we're thinking about the situation in the world, tells us some very good news. He is a good God. See, his holy means he is a God of justice. He abhors evil. Isn't that good to know? He cares deeply about suffering and wickedness. As we understand what it means that God is holy, we discover he is everything that he should be. Everything indeed we want him to be. And he is completely in control. I love verse 6. See, also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. One of the most spectacular holidays we ever had was visiting Canada and the lakes. I'll never forget the sight of the glacial lakes. Ice blue, ice blue, amazing, clear as crystal. You could see to the bottom. You could see your own reflection as you looked in them. The lakes were like a pane of glass. You know, we have pictures at home of the mountains as clear in the reflection as above the water. I remember trying to take one of those uh, pictures when a busload of tourists arrived and one of them jumped off the bus and threw a a stone into the lake and the ripples went all out. Couldn't take the photo for ages. Had to wait again until it went completely calm. The point is this, you see. A lake is only clear like glass when it is completely calm. That's the point in verse 6. All's calm around the throne. There's not a ripple of disturbance. As we look at the turmoil and commotion in the world, God is not phased by all the problems. He is not panicking. But even as I say it, I can imagine some people being angered by that thought. How can all be calm in heaven when we see such tragedy on earth? Now, please don't confuse calm with apathy. 
a few years ago, it was about 7.30 in the morning, our door, front doorbell rang as I opened it, our next door neighbour, he uh, was late 20s, early 30s, he was standing there as white as a sheet, clutching his chest. He thought he was having a heart attack. I thought he was having a heart attack. And as I panicked with him standing there on my doorstep, I almost had a heart attack. Until my wife Caroline came down the stairs. Now Caroline's a nurse. She was completely calm. She knew exactly what to do. She sat him down, took his pulse, calmed him down, calmed me down. But I want to say this, her calm wasn't because she didn't care, but because she was in control. All is calm in heaven because God is in control. Don't confuse calm with apathy. The Lord God Almighty is holy. He cares about the wickedness of this world. And we see just how much he cares as we turn to chapter 5. You see, chapter 4 assures us that God is in control. Chapter 5 tells us that he is directing history. In chapter 5, verse 1, John sees the Lord God Almighty holding a scroll in his right hand. The scroll tells the story of the world's future. It tells of the coming judgment on human rebellion. And to open the scroll is to make sense of the crazy events that go on in the world around us. What is the point of all of this stuff? So to open the scroll is is really important because it gives us an understanding of the world. And then we read this in verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. How can we make sense of this crazy world? As Sheila said, we'd have to be shown because we can't work it out. Who can tell us why the world is as it is? From time to time, uh, when I look at the television news, I feel desperate about the world we live in. On one or two occasions, and it probably should happen a lot more, but I'm dull to it, but on one or two occasions, watching the news has left me close to tears. Well, the Apostle John was not just close to tears, he wept. He was desperate. He longed to know the meaning of life. He was desperate to discover the point of it all. He was overwhelmed by the thought that there was no one in heaven or on earth who could tell us the point of all the suffering in the world. See, who can tell us the the meaning of history? So many have tried. Plato, Socrates, Isaac Newton, George Washington, Albert Einstein, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Where can we turn? There have been many attempts to open this scroll of history of the world to explain why our world is as it is. The mighty ancient empires tended to see history as reaching its conclusion and climax with the arrival of their empire. And look at the architecture and literature proclaims that that's their view of history. Some empires invented mythological stories about their origins to suggest that heaven and earth were working together towards their moment of history. The Greek empire through Homer had stories that made the formation and development of their empire seem so significant and historic. The Romans had Virgil to show how their empire was destined to be the great world historical force. So we could go on. In the 18th century, Edward Gibbon wrote a new account of Rome, but this document is the decline and fall of Rome. 
And in the process, Gibbon suggested a different and very controversial meaning of history itself. For Gibbon, as for many of his age, rationalism was worthy to open the scroll. I would give you the the answer to the meaning of life. But at the beginning of the 21st century, knowing that the totalitarian ideas of rationalism, whether fascist or communist, left so many dead, we don't want rationalism anywhere near the title deeds of the universe. Now, the 19th century had many suggestions about the meaning of history. In the early 19th century, great thinkers like Hegel developed a new view of history defined in in the notion of progress. For many, this uh, progress meant the spread of civilization, whatever, whatever that meant. For Marx, history was the irresistible progress of economic forces leading to global communism. Once, and it's not that very long ago, Marxism was heralded as the ideology that really could explain history. It was taught that, uh, that it was futile to resist its inevitable conquest of the world. So much so that you could live under a communist regime and if you didn't believe it was the final answer, you could be sent for treatment for mental illness because it obviously was the answer. Now today it seems clear to most of the world that Marxism was not worthy to open the scroll of history. See, attempts to explain the meaning and direction of the history of the world have been rolled out through the centuries. But no great philosopher has ever been able to tell us what life is really all about. No great scientist has ever been able to declare where the universe is heading. And no great political leader can give us the definitive answer to this most fundamental question. Are the questions being asked here? But really the the real answer, the real question here is who is worthy? You see it there in verse 2, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? See, as I consider all the great contenders to open the scroll of history down through the ages, all the politicians and generals and philosophers, I wonder if they'd make very pleasant next-door neighbours. That's the point here. Would I find them a little too violent to ask them round as babysitters? Would their personal lifestyle be a little too devious or greedy or promiscuous for me to introduce them to my visiting parents? Hey, Mum, I'd like you to visit Joseph Stalin. He lives next door. He's quite a character. Oh, don't offend him. Well, look, I joke about it, but you you see, you get the point. Who can we trust with power to control the universe? As Lord Acton famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've seen it throughout history. Those who've gained significant power have become monsters. Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, add to your list. Power to direct the world's affairs is dangerous, dangerous in the wrong hands. No wonder in heaven they had to search to find someone who was worthy to open the scroll, not just someone who could explain it to us. Surely whoever is worthy to answer all the questions of life and to direct history towards universal peace and justice, surely they'd be a thoroughly exemplary individual, someone beyond all criticism and suspicion, someone who'd be a real model for the world, someone you'd want your children to aspire to be like, or any of them like that. In the main, the loudest and brightest attempts to to claim universal answers have led to bloodshed bloodshed and and deeper feelings of despair to such an extent that that many in the Western world have become too cynical to even attempt to discover the meaning of life and the direction of history. So today's self-appointed voice on that one is Richard Dawkins. He insists there's no God and no point to life at all. 
He writes this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no other good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Blind, pitiless indifference. Is that what we're left with? It's enough to make you weep. Jesus' disciple John did weep. He wept. He wept when he thought there was no one worthy to open the scroll. No one who could help him to understand the reason for life that it is. No one to tell him why the world was in such a mess. But as he wept, verse 5, one of the elders of heaven said to him, Don't weep. See, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the whole earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. See, as John wept, it turns out there is someone who's worthy to open the scroll that is in the hand of God. And it is the Lion of Judah. The lion that as he steps forward turns out to be a lamb. All pictures from the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is universally acknowledged in heaven as the only one worthy to take the scroll. See, Jesus of Nazareth is much more than a religious figure in ancient history. He was spoken of by ancient prophets hundreds of years before he was born. And in heaven he's proclaimed worthy to direct history and make sense of this crazy world. And you'll see why he's worthy as you look down to verse 9. They sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God. You see, here we see Jesus mighty and powerful. In verse 6, he is in the centre of the throne in heaven. He has all power over the universe. Jesus mighty and power, powerful, yet he uses his power and authority for the good of others. Well, in chapter 6, we discover that he's going to judge the world. On one final day in history, when the world is wrapped up as we know it, he will put all wrongs right. That is very good news. Isn't that wonderful to think of? When you read this stuff, don't you think, how good to know that people who do such evil will not get away with murder. Isn't that good news? Except, of course, it means he'll judge you and me for the way we've lived as well. That's why verse 9 is such a relief. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. Jesus is all-powerful, yet he dies for the sake of others. He dies to get us right with God. See, that's the real problem. You and I have rebelled against God. The whole of mankind has rebelled against God. So for me, one of the most striking images in these chapters is back in chapter 4, verse 10. Do you see it there? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. 
See, in heaven they lay down their crowns before God. In other words, they take off their crown, they say, you are God. So different from heaven, uh, from earth, because that is the problem with earth. The whole of our lives is an attempt to usurp the king. We're all pretenders to the throne. We strut around this world as if we own the place and as if the universe revolves around us. And that's why we get so upset when things don't go our way. How dare you do that to me? We don't say it's how we're thinking. Bob Geldof, the, the pop star who became a great advocate for humanitarian aid, said this. My my point of view was that I'd seen the worst horrors, but they were man-induced and therefore man-solvable. Geldof is half right, isn't he? The problems of the world are man-induced, but he's only half right, they're not man-solvable. See, our politicians at their party conferences will not solve the problems in in our world, and I'm not knocking them for trying or for what they're doing, I'm just saying they're not going to solve the problems because we are the problem. And because we're the problem, we can't solve the problem. And the real problem is that we're out of relationship with the living God because we've turned our back on him. And so as Jesus died on the cross, verse 9, Jesus purchased men and women for God. He paid the ultimate price to bring us back to God. That is why he's worthy. See, as I look at Jesus Christ, I'm struck by the amazing combination of power and humility, of strength and yet gentleness. On the one hand, we see demons cower before him, the weather obey him, even death defeated by him. And on the other hand, he is so patient and gentle with the people that he deals with, allowing people to resist him and even plot against him. He even allowed his creatures to torture and kill him, but his death was no catastrophic mistake. He was the sacrificial lamb whose blood was poured out to bring men and women back to God. And for this reason he's acclaimed as the only one worthy to open the scroll. See, Jesus has shown that he can be trusted with ultimate power. And as we close, let me ask you to think about this. Will you examine? Will you examine how he handled money? Was there any mismanagement or corruption? There always is with the leaders, not with him. Examine how he related to men and women. Was there any sleaze? Not a sniff of it. Examine how he responded to those who hated him and those who lied about him. Examine how he constantly cared for those who were in need. He didn't use his power for his own comfort. He used it for the dignity and nobility and comfort of others. No one has ever poured out their lives for others as he did. See, consider this, when we see just aspects of him reflected in others, whether in peaceful resistant movements or material generosity or care for the oppressed or compassion for the sick, whenever we see these echoes of Jesus, we respond to them knowing that these are the answers to the needs of humanity, far more than any of the empires and ideologies that humanity ever fought for. The Bible describes Jesus actually as the desire of all nations. And history has shown us that to be the case. Millions of people from every language and and nation follow him today. 
And we know that when his teaching is genuinely put into practice, forget for a moment those who, in the name of Christ, put it, don't put it into practice. They're hypocrites. Forget them. But when his teaching is genuinely put into practice, we've found that the world is a better place. Whether it concerns money or land or power or justice or compassion. Hey, Jesus is the one who has the confidence of heaven and earth. The only one who can safely wield the power of authority over history. Let me ask you, will you investigate this Jesus, the one whom even angels worship? Will you consider his claims? Uh, Do you understand why Jesus had to die? Not just die, but had to die. Have you grasped why his death is, is so important to the throne room of heaven? Do you get why his death makes him worthy to open the scroll? I think we owe it to ourselves to take some time to see why so many people for so many centuries have worshipped this man. Many people I meet um, haven't seriously considered Jesus since they were at school. They made their mind up about him based on opinions formed in RE lessons. Look, he's far too important to have formed our opinions about him based on schoolboy thinking. Let me urge you today, as you look at this crazy world, as you ask the big questions of life, let me urge you today to consider Jesus. And there's no better way of doing that than as uh, David mentioned earlier uh, in the service, indeed, as Sheila mentioned to us, this Christianity Explored course. Next one starts on the 12th of October. Many, many, many people in this church, and indeed hundreds all over the country, have found this supremely helpful to ask their questions. It's an opportunity to examine these questions for yourself in a very informal and unpressurised setting. Any question is allowed. Any question is a good question. Uh, So will you come? Tuesday the 12th of October. Uh, I've uh, got these invitations with me. I'll be standing at the door uh, at the end. If you want one, just grab one from me or pick one up around the place. I'm going to tuck them in the back of uh, this little booklet called The Real Jesus Uh, take a booklet Uh, whether you can come to the course or not take a booklet Uh, because that will tell you more about the real Jesus not the schoolboy Jesus that many of us have got stuck in our minds well uh, thanks very much for listening Uh, it's very good of you to come and uh, we'd love to see you come again with us Uh, for now we're going to close our service by singing together and this hymn goes right to the very heart of what we believe The death of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything for us that we need dread no condemnation standing before God uh, but can be put right with the living God and be sure of all eternity with him. Let's stand as we sing together.